0: Today we discuss Lewis vs. Waddup, Kilrain vs. Sullivan, and so much more. It's Charles Parson Davies, Part 3. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. You did it, you hit the button, here you are, here I am. Can you see me? I can't see you. Can you, you can see me? Get away from my window, get off my lawn. What am I doing? What am I talking about? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter. I am a pro wrestling booker, for, but more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd, and I am joined by the best co-host that I can get with a budget of zero. It's Chongo Bronson. How's your day going? Oh, you know
1: what? It's uh, a. You get what you pay for, darling. And I'm, you know, I'm up to par for the challenge. And, you know, I challenge you to
0: find a better co host for the dollar. And I will say, as the guy who has to edit this, the only person who pays for it
1: is me. (laughs) That's true. That's what we call a shoot, darling. Hello,
0: nerds! I'm excited to get back to this story. It's the story of. Charles Parson Davies part three we did it we made it to a third part did I think we would get this many episodes I did not but this guy's story is so crazy this guy's story is so wild he was behind so many big stars so many big matches so many big fights that this series is getting out of hand but I find every minute of, of it fascinating and I hope you do as well But before we jump into this, um, I do want to thank Lydia and Mike for your your research donations. uh, This go around. Every penny helps. Every penny means the world to me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Yes, capital. Yes, we appreciate all the, the love and support on keeping the funding going for the archaeological research on the Hippodrome Express. And yeah, like you just said, it's part three because everything you just covered... That was just what happened at the men's at the bar, right? Like, we haven't even gone deep into... We're talking about the intertwinement of boxing, pro wrestling, and, like, this is the scariest time of storytelling that could ever happen.
0: In our last episode, we talked about his representation of Evan the Strangler Lewis going into those matches in a different perspective from a different angle than we did years ago when we just covered the man himself. We covered the craziest goddamn bar fight story I have ever heard. And we are now moving into the year 1888 where we're just gonna pick up the story as it goes. We're gonna start in April, 1888 when police superintendent George Hubert told Charles Davies that gambling was officially banned in Chicago as per a campaign promise of Mayor John A. Roach. Thus, the side bets for the upcoming Evan Lewis-Jack Wannup match would have to be taken down, according to the May 8th InterOcean. So, think about how damaging this is for sports, especially boxing and wrestling, in a city like Chicago, if gambling is made illegal. So, okay,
1: do you think that it was an intentional, like, like as a hit that they did it in such a way that they didn't allow the like standing bets to get finished out and be like at this date gambling is illegal. They just shut that shit they down. They just
0: came in with a like an axe and just chopped it down right where it stood. This was a time when you would have a lot of these puritanical temperance movements. You'd have the anti-gambling movements, the anti-alcohol movements. Everything that could be considered a vice was seen as an offense to the virtuous. So yeah, a lot of fun things were kind of getting nudged out the door. But this was devastating to the sporting world because most of the money in sporting was made from betting, even if it was you betting on yourself because that's how a lot of boxing and wrestling was considered. You had to put down your 1500 guarantee or whatever in order to even get the ball rolling.
1: Yeah, and you know, that's, It's attacking the financial mechanism of the entire infrastructure of both sports, pro wrestling and boxing. And it's one of those, you know, countless cases where the attempt to shut down the corruption only opens the door for more corruption.
0: And Davies argued the fine points of the ruling with little success, having pointed out that horse racing for stakes and purses was still legal, competition between wrestlers and boxers wasn't allowed on the same financial merits from the april 10th chicago tribune when the new license year began 90 keepers of disreputable saloons were refused licenses subsequently a few of these were given licenses on the promise of reformation so yeah people were coming in like their entire business was based on putting down stakes on boxing wrestling you know dog races knife fights monkey knife fights whatever it is they were doing. And they would literally see their entire livelihood collapse because the Puritans were winning this round.
1: And what did they think was going to happen? Like, I mean, first of all, welcome to Chicago, pal. Like, if you think shutting down shit that people want to do at the bars and just saying it's not okay now is not going to get the opposite to happen, like, apparently you have not been paying
0: attention. And to make matters worse, Davies was also warned that the upcoming wrestling match must be devoid of brutality and the stranglehold must be banned. The mayor claimed that he saw advertisements for, quote, a strangling match and did not want that in his city. He acknowledged that it would be impossible to stop all gambling, but this rule should keep people from making a spectacle of it. So, in addition to cutting that down, he also wanted no brutality in an Evan the Strangler Lewis match which was the marketing cornerstone of Evan the Strangler Lewis matches.
1: Yeah, first of all, in my entire life, I have never seen a match advertised for a strangling match. What a great booking, but um, yeah, this guy's obviously a player hater. I don't know how he got elected. He's, I hope he doesn't get reelected. and I mean, maybe this... Again, we're bouncing back in time even further than we've seen it come forward, so we're back further in the de-evolution, but... The gimmick of whether the strangler is allowed to use the stranglehold or not definitely influences the box office and the book. But what's it going to do when they shut down 90 legal bookies? I can only imagine.
0: And it wasn't just wrestling. Boxing was also still facing crackdowns in Chicago. The April 16th Chicago Tribune covered the story of a fight between Billy Owen and Martin Regan that ended with a police rage and the intention to, quote, apprehend and prosecute all who witnessed to the fight. So they were even starting to go after people who even bought a fucking ticket.
1: How does somebody with this level of extreme religious slant and ideology get this much absolute power to just try to just change the culture on a dime with an iron fist? Boo this nerd, I say.
0: And come the day of the uh, Jack Wanup, Evan Lewis match, Captain Blackjack Bonfield, who led the violent charge into the crowd during the Haymarket riot, was on hand to watch the match. Quote, Captain Bonfield, Detective Aldrich, and a score of stalwart patrolmen were scattered among the audience, stated the Norfolk Daily News. As Mark T. Dunn, author of Chicago's Greatest Sportsman, Charles E. Parson Davies, suggested, Bonfield was probably requiring a bribe to even allow the match to go forward on May 7, 1888.
1: You don't say they needed a little action on the side to make sure this super Puritan extra check mark event went through and was extra, extra goody two shoes and babyface, right? All the people had to get paid illegally behind the scenes. All right, that makes sense. At least it's still in Chicago a little bit.
0: But at least it was successful off the gate because thousands of people showed up to watch Jack Wanup take on Evan Lewis at Battery D. With the side bets taken down, it was for a 75-25 split, which, as the Quincy, Illinois news pointed out, quote, as there were four thousand persons who struggled for choice seats, the winner received quite a handsome sum. So at least at least the purse was not
1: super influenced by the the complete shattering of the economic system of with the intertwinement of gambling, but um yeah, that's you know. It speaks, I think it also added to the intrigue for Bannon Stranglehold. People wanted to see it because they felt, if nothing else, all of this legal hoopla is going to give the, the the presentation to the public that this is going to be on the up and up. The square, as they say.
0: Well, and plus, Evan Lewis was marketed as the most brutal bastard in the world. It was a very successful marketing campaign, so I feel like a lot of people were showing up to see if he stepped over the line or what crazy thing was gonna happen now after his, you know, choking out of Matsuda, then nearly breaking Matsuda's ankle, and then causing a riot in Buffalo by putting his elbow into Dennis Gallagher's throat. So I feel like a lot of people were showing up just in case shit went down, but also he was just a hot draw unto himself and Colonel Hopkins was on hand and announced that the winner of the match could get half the gate to the following night at the casino theater if they could throw Sorokichi Matsuda in 15 minutes. What? Wait, what kind of a swerve is this?
1: What kind of extra, you know, what, yeah, what I, do they call that? Filibustering.
0: I, I almost feel like, you know, I, I picture it like a comedy where Matsuda's there and goes, wait, what? No, no. Yeah, <laughs> what do I get? Shut up. <laughs> you get thrown again. And the odds were definitely in Lewis's favor. William Muldoon had sent Lewis a telegram before the match telling him, quote, Be cool, patient, and determined. Nothing but the police can stop you winning. Ha! That's actually a super
1: uh, layered line because you know what is really funny about that is because Muldoon is the police and Muldoon fancies himself like the czar of all wrestling and all that. So he's like, no one can stop you but me. And also the regular police because it's Chicago.
0: According to the Chicago Tribune, one-up an easy mark. The Englishman has no show against the strangler. The police, who are present, find no cause to stop the match. Wan-up spirit broken in the first bout in which he was thrown in six minutes. Lewis's friend's jubilant. An easy mark. Imagine how detrimental to your self-esteem that that would be. Yeah, especially, like, with the
1: unintentional, like, extra sting of calling a wrestler a mark. Like, that wound me to the quick... But. It's so funny because like, as we know by modern standards, six minutes of working your ass off to ultimately get a takedown. They're like, this went quick. That is a lifetime. (laughs) And like, I mean, these, as we look back on it, these, you know, one hour falls and all of these extremely long matches, it kind of nullifies the fact six minutes of battling. One of the best guys in the world is some shit. And to get it in a slam, and they're like, oh, those guys are phoning it in. It's like, did they have arm... They didn't have quarterbacks yet, but they definitely had armchairs. They were, they <laughs> were being some kind of, you know, uh, what do they call that? cheap seats, bronies.
0: And the match was rather one-sided. Lewis threw one up in three straight falls, winning the best of five series. The Tribune described the two men as they came out for the second fall. Quote, Lewis light and confident. Wanup sheepish and dull. He's afraid of the strangler, said the knowing ones. His heart's broke. The spirit's out of him. The first fall was six and a half minutes, the second six minutes, and the third a mere 58 seconds. And again, if I read that about myself in the paper, I would change my name, change my profession, and move to an island where no one can find me and judge me. Yeah, you're going to need a
1: one-up after that, like a one-up uh, mushroom from Mario Brothers because you're not going to one-up the strangler if you get swept. That is a rough one, but it does, it It speaks to that it's probably legit competition because that smells like somebody who got broken the first two falls and they didn't feel like they had anything left psychologically because obviously, again, by the the standards of the era, he probably had a lot left in the tank physically. He just... Was getting his ass handed to him
0: if it was a shoot and that's a situation where anybody who's competed knows the feeling of when you get your ass absolutely dominated by somebody like you you've got nothing for them and you're in great shape you're in competing shape but you just go in there and you are just being held down for you know for for rounds you're held down there for the entire match everything you try they've got a counter to and you just get up and you're just like you know what i i got it. i got nothing i got nothing uh, i remember one time in a jujitsu match uh, that happened to me where i decided to try to step up my weight class which was dumb as a blue belt and i went in and i, I have polaroids somewhere of this match that my stepdad took i look like a kid wrestling an adult i look like i was like playing with one of like my dad's friends or something like that and it was like every time we grabbed each other i'm on the ground Try to like get guard, nothing. I might get, you know, like half guard. He's immediately out of it. Just holding me down, holding me down, holding me down. Didn't even need to try to go for a submission. He was just holding me down like a schoolyard bully and got the win. And at the end, physically, I was fine. Mentally and emotionally, broken.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. Once you've, If there's that person that you train with consistently that you know, every time you've ever trained with them, they beat your ass and they tap you out and they submit you and you've never got them. If you guys are, if you were in a competition with this person, cause it's multiple falls, that's the coldest part. It's like, they literally just beat you. Imagine if that was like a modern UFC fight where it was like the finish, how they happen. And obviously we'd be worried about like damage, but take that out of it. If it just got restarted and it's like, you just got demoralized and you have to fight this guy at least two more times. Exactly.
0: And I thought this was fun. As the third fall was about to start, the police took up positions around the ring, a big flex from Captain Bonfield. Also possibly a chill the fuck out reminder to Lewis, who was being a little rough with Wannup. And in the end, Lewis was carried around in celebration by his fans, while Wannup was bloodied and bruised. And there were stories of Wanup drinking before the match, and audience members claiming they could have thrown Juan up as drunk as he was. <laughs> that is, that is
1: a, I can't even imagine uh, how that must feel. That's got to be frustrating. It's like, listen, don't win your fight too much. Don't beat your opponent up in this prize fight too much. And yet, what a dick to flex the cops. It actually now it makes me wonder, maybe it was a war because Lewis was like, you know what, fuck this town. I just want to get out of here quick. Three falls, 15 minutes, I'm out the door.
0: And gambling may have been illegal, but that didn't stop reports of $20,000 changing hands that day in bets. 5K was bet at a single saloon between 6 and 7 p.m. alone, claimed the Norfolk Daily News. But there are alternate takes on this match. My friend Sarah Cox, whose research and writing can be found at grapplingwithhistory.com, sent me this as a counterpoint. In mid-February 1888, English wrestler Jack Wannup bid farewell to his wife, kids, and the wrestling and boxing club he founded in Newcross, Southeast London, and boarded a ship for the U.S. Aged 33, but pretending to the English press to be a few years younger, the five-foot-eight-and-a-half and 190-pound Wannup was a carpenter by trade and best known in Britain as a Cumberland and Westmoreland wrestler, but proficient across every other folk wrestling style too, and as a boxer with a preference for the old style, or bare fists. He was among the larger men on the British pugilist scene at the time, with little opportunity to wrestle competitively in London, where wrestling wasn't yet particularly popular as it was in the north of England. At the time, he was largely training others, performing exhibition matches with his students, and helping develop and popularize the newly formed catch-as-catch-can style of wrestling in the English capital. Waddup was described in the English press as a fighter of exceptional ability, and while billed is the English champion for the purpose of drumming a publicity for his match with Lewis, this wasn't a title which officially existed during this time period. Journalists had, for a few years, occasionally used the moniker in connection with Wanup since he won a match in South London in 1844, organized for the purpose of crowning a cross-wrestling styles champion. He had also won the London Prize three years in a row across the early 1880s, at a popular Cumberland and Westmoreland wrestling tournament. But there were certainly one or two other Britons, namely the Northern veteran George Steadman, who might have had a better claim to the title of champion, if it had existed, than Wannup. Certainly, Wannup was the best-known wrestler in London at the time, and a talented athlete, who in 1887 had declared that because there were no wrestlers in London anywhere near his caliber, he would have to take his talents to America instead, or, as the Sporting Life newspaper put it, as the mountain refuses to come to Muhammad, the latter is going for the mountain. There is no evidence to suggest that Wanup and his backers believed themselves to be coming to America for anything other than a fair fight. In his mid-30s, with a growing family back home, Wanup was confident in both his ability as a wrestler and keen enough for a big payday to make the journey to America. Yet reports from the match noted that Wannup was quickly outclassed by Lewis, and appeared shocked and distressed early in the first round. The match was over in just a few short minutes, the third round lasting no more than 58 seconds. News reports afterward suggested that WANUP had a flushed face ahead of the match and had been seen drinking alcohol before the fight. Sarah Elizabeth Cox, writer of the blog Grappling With History, wrote her postgraduate history thesis on WANUP and his career and dismisses that suggestion as fake news, entirely out of character and simply confusing. When he had spent months preparing for such a highly anticipated and high-stakes event and had a relatively squeaky-clean persona before and after in his career, why would Wannup have risked it? Sarah argues that Wannup's poor performance may in part have been down to nerves, his well-documented occasional flare-ups of rheumatoid arthritis, and admittedly Lewis's talent, but something a bit more sinister was also at play. In June, word was received in England from Wannup that he'd been too scared to win the match. He deliberately lost because Lewis's Chicago mob had threatened a reprisal attack if their man went down. Wannup stayed in the U.S. for another year and upon return home in 1889, went into more detail in an interview for The Sporting Life about what happened with Lewis. He had been lured to America by a man who turned out to be Lewis's uncle, W.T. Pascal, to compete in a match designed purely to enhance the reputation of his nephew, Wanup claimed. I was doing very well here before I went to America, but after listening to the blandishments of Pasco, who cruelly deceived me at the flush, I thought a wider field would be open to me on the other side of the Atlantic, I received a rude awakening when I reached Chicago to wrestle with Lewis the Strangler, the men who had me in tow I soon found out were Lewis's friends. The same article notes that wrestler Jack Carkeek was so disgusted with Pascal's behavior in bringing Wad up to America, purely to enhance Lewis's reputation rather than put on a fair fight, that Carkeek had refused to attend the match. So already, we're getting a much different view of this match, a much different story told.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating because I could totally see that. It's like, oh, you want to fuck with our legal bookings? Our legal, you know, uh, gambling? Then we're going to fix this fight and we're going to make sure that the illegal books go the way we want them to go. I could totally see the mob doing that. However, my my counterpoint to that is you just got brought in as the top guy and put in as the top foreign guy from your homeland. And yeah, you had to take a fall in Chicago to the top guy, but... What prevented him from continuing around America and being like, you know, I mean, you just came in and lost to the, to the...
0: Well, he actually did stay in America for quite some time.
1: But why would that, I don't understand how he felt that that caused it to derail, like, his push. I feel like that would be a great place to get if that was the highest you got. But, yeah, that's fucked up if they threatened his ass. I just think he's, um, I don't know, what
0: was he thinking? Like, welcome to Chicago, dog. like... That's how it goes. Or to continue Sarah's work, in 1907, veteran wrestler reporter Walter The Cross Armstrong, the best nickname I've ever heard in my life, in a biography of Wanup for the Boxing World and Mirror of Life newspaper, quoted from a letter Jack wrote to his friend George Brown from the U.S., which had been handed to Armstrong. If we're to believe it, it's further evidence that Wanup was intimidated into throwing the match. Quote, Lewis is a good wrestler, but his ability in that direction are not all to be compared to his skills as a negotiator, said Wannup. In fact, Lewis and his people circumvented me throughout and never gave me a chance. I was afraid to win in face of the crew they had hung around the ring. It was agreed in advance that we were to split the gate money, but I had to make an awful row before I got my share. So I can't really vouch one way or the other because that's the joy of history. And also... And I'm not going to say it was one way or the other, because there are three distinct possibilities. One, it was a shoot. It was a shoot, and Lewis ran his ass over. Two, it was a work, and WANAP was in on it, and just was saving face. And then there's also the possibility that what he described later was the case, that he wanted a legitimate competition, and you know, Lewis's guys leaned on him Chicago style and he was too afraid to fight back and threw the match. But, you know, sometimes people embellish down the road. Sometimes you make weird excuses for why you lost. Not everybody takes the L and uh, in stride. It has to make a fun little tale about it on the back end. Who knows? That's Sarah's take on it. This is my take on it. That's history. We don't have an actual time machine, so we'll never know for sure. You know, I gotta, I gotta agree with Sarah though, because I feel like that sounds
1: entirely plausible to me.
0: Oh yeah, there, are, there are no impossible answers in this equation, and every answer is fascinating. Yeah. And it's just a great match, a great story, and it brings historians from opposite sides of the Atlantic together to discuss it. Yeah, and us too. <laughs> The next night, as promised, Lewis appeared at the Casino Theater, and according to the Chicago Tribune on May 9th, Davies told him to take it easy on Matsuda to give people their money's worth, and to make sure the cops don't shut them down over Lewis beating up Matsuda a third time.
1: <laughs> Man, this is gonna sound. This is probably going to sound fucked up, but you know it was an ass-whooping if they are, are pleading for mercy for the foreign guy. Back then, those crowds and the police were racist as shit.
0: Yeah, but they were looking at any excuse to step on it. It, it, Everything was hanging by a thread. And him nearly killing Matsuda twice was across the sports papers coast to coast. So a third match under these very tenuous circumstances definitely were going to be under the spotlight in society and in politics.
1: Poor Matsuda. Who is somebody, what has somebody got on him? And they're like, you gotta go against the Strangler again, and now he's really pissed.
0: Well, think about how this must have felt. Lewis pinned him at 12 and a half minutes, but Matsuda claimed he bridged out. Sorokichi's backers, the Leave It Brothers, told the ref that they'd bet $100 that 20 men in the room would agree. Davies countered that the $100 should stay on the table, and Lewis could give Matsuda a second shot for it they back down on the subject.
1: First of all, what a degenerate gambler answer, like, we'll make another bet on it right now, the room will agree with us. That is, yeah, but the fact that they backed down tells you that all you need to know, really. That's when push comes to shove, the shove was not a push.
0: In September 1888, Parson Davies sold his stake in the store, the saloon he had owned and managed for two years. The place of the great bar brawl that we talked about in our last episode. Ah, what memories he must have had of that place. He moved on and ran his business out of his younger brother's bar, Corcoran and Davies, which was a boozy home for high-level politicians to drink, meet, and scheme. So a perfect place for a high-level sporting promoter to make friends that he'll need down the road.
1: Man, I feel like when he closed down the bar, it was like the last episode of Cheers or like <laughs> Fred Friends when he turned off the light and like left. That's almost sad. That place had some history. But also it's tightly like, I'm just gonna go to my brother's bar now and set up the nefarious underbelly. Like Exactly.
0: On September 17th, Davies matched Jack Wanup up against Pat Killen in a boxing match at Battery D. A number of Chicago politicians were in attendance which probably chilled the presence of the abusive police force. It was reportedly by the Chicago Tribune as a four-round scientific display of boxing, proving is a better boxer than he was a wrestler, but, quote, WANUP is a good man, but Killen simply played with him. The rules for boxing in Chicago only allowed this kind of tactical sparring as a fight. Going out and whooping the shit out of a guy would end the match and result in licenses being revoked. This is why Parsa Davies denied that he was looking at Chicago for the side of a potential Jack Kilrain versus John L. Sullivan match. So it is nice to hear Wadup, you know, did kind of get his shine back a little bit. But yeah, it's kind of wild, again, that they had to resort to kind of a technical sparring match where you're going like 50%. You know, you're not, you're not really fighting. You're not really trying to knock a guy out. You're doing, you know, point sparring, for the lack of a better word.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting how sometimes the over-legislation of combat sports will result in weird stuff like that. Like, for years in California when we were coming up, smokers were outlawed. Like, Ill- amateur fights were not legal or sanctioned by the state, so they had to be underground, right?
0: And, and just to kind of cut in, for people who don't know what a smoker is, a smoker is essentially what's supposed to be a friendly sparring competition without license, without... The, the athletic commission giving it a green light. It's You'll see this with kickboxing gyms and boxing gyms where two gyms will come together for a smoker where we're going to have friendly competition between the two gyms when, in fact, we're fighting for our gym pride, our gym honor, and we're going to beat the dog shit out of each other in a real fight, but we're calling it something different for legality. Yeah, and it's just
1: it's a natural thing that you have to have in the evolution of the sport because how... How else does anyone else go from an amateur to a professional if you don't have some form of amateur competition? You know, jiu-jitsu has jiu-jitsu tournaments and everybody else. But some, some styles, just the, the way the athletic commissions are in certain places, it can really inhibit that. And, you know, as far as what a, what a pioneer, man. This guy really did. He, he, he wrestled one of the baddest men of all time and of his era. And he, had, and he boxed at the... And that's pretty fucking... Oh yeah, he was
0: he was trying to get a, a fight with Sullivan. I mean, he really was like... He was reaching for the stars. And one thing from that boxing exhibition that I really loved was all the like high-level Chicago politicians there to watch the fight. Because, keep in mind, he just moved his headquarters to a place where a lot of the politicians hang out. And that's a great way to insulate yourself from, from legal problems is you bring all the top you know, political uh, guys to the fight and you give them the VIP treatment because they know if these guys are here, the cops sure as shit are not going to show up and cause problems because the cops were being problems. In December, the police were hassling Davies' boxing exhibitions at the casino theater while Davies battled them in court. The police went as far as putting out warrants for Jake Kilrain and English boxer Charlie Mitchell. Davies who strove to be an honest salesman, told the theater to put up notices that his fighters wouldn't be there. The theater did no such thing, and the place was packed with sporting fans ready to watch an exhibition, which is a dick move.
1: Yeah, so, man, everybody is working against him, and he's just trying. It's hard to be an honest man in a dirty game, darling.
0: And I love this so much. Davies confronted the theater manager, Andy McKay, who tried to throw the parson out of his office. Davies slugged McKay in the face, dropping the much bigger man. Davies picked him up and lit into him again, giving him black eyes and a broken nose, and finished up with a few vicious kicks to the man on the floor.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, you know what? That, that's what you get, man. You, you fucked with this guy's business, his reputation. He's got, he's got political friends. You don't think he can
0: kick your ass in your own office? Yeah, I, I love the old timey. It's like, oh, he's like, he's just the promoter. He's just, he's just a businessman, and he just beats the dog shit out of a guy without even thinking twice. I would never imagine a, a wrestling promoter doing such a thing in the year 2022 or 2023. Yes, I've
1: never, I've <laughs> never, I've never seen such a thing occur, especially present company. You know, we're a bunch of angels nowadays. The ga- the game is obviously. Gotten so watered down that we we never have such situations anymore. But that would be cool if it happened.
0: Mitchell and Kilrain hid from the cops until the next day, then hot footed it to Fort Wayne, Indiana. <laughs> I could totally
1: see them just like hiding out, like hopping a train, and like, there they go that way. I, I
0: picture the cops going by like a couple of barrels in an alleyway, and then like the lids lift off, and it's them looking out to see if they were in the clear, very Scooby Doo style.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And thus started a tour that saw them chased out of several major cities by the police who did not want boxing in their backyards. I found a fun one from the Chicago Tribune on December 29th. Glad to get out of Cleveland, Kilrain and Parsa Davies again attacked at a saloon. After Mitchell and Kilrain did their sparring exhibition, they went out with friends for a drink. They ended up at a bar ran by Tom Costello, a big fan of John L. Sullivan, and his friend slash local tough Bill Fleming, both of whom had words for the group. He grabbed a heavy poker as a weapon, so Davies, quote, drew a revolver and fired at Fleming, who ran away, and Kilrain punched Castillo twice.
1: (laughs) Hey, don't bring a poker to a gunfight with a promoter from a rival bar if, if Bill Sullivan isn't there, man.
0: Problem solvings, conflict solution in the 1880s were fantastic. Very direct. It was very direct. <laughs> oh, yeah,
1: I, you know, and it, it's back then, you know, I would not, I would be a little bit more hesitant back in the, the cowboy days to pull a hot poker on somebody who might have a hot iron on that hip.
0: In December 1888, Parson Davies watched Australian boxer Peter Jackson, and no, not the guy who directed Lord of the Rings, knock out Joe McAuliffe. What really caught his eye was the nearly $70,000 that changed hands in bets. He what? saw Jackson, and he saw money. Think about finding out there were $70,000 bets in 1888 money on a boxing match. Yeah, how is that even, like that's, like... that's, like, all the money that existed.
1: Yeah, like, were they, like, printing money? Was this Where was this fight at? Fort Knox? Is this how gold was invented? What did, what, did, what are the name of the hippodrome? This is the biggest... I don't think I've heard of a bigger gate back in this era. How did they... That, was the, they,
0: that wasn't even the game. That was the betting. No, I know. How did
1: they drum up that level of, of knowledge and just that? That's a, that's a hot, hot ticket, darling.
0: But Jackson had one serious obstacle in his way to boxing superstardom in America. He was black. Born on the island of St. Croix, he was descendant of a freed slave from Jamaica whose owner's last name was Jackson. He worked on ships and relocated to Australia, where he worked on the docks and at one point quelled a mutiny with his fists. And and this is what got the attention of Australian boxer and trainer Larry Foley. Can you imagine being like, oh yeah, you should see this guy. Oh, is he a boxer? No, but he just, on natural talent, quelled a mutiny by beating the shit out of everyone.
1: Yeah, he beat up a pirate ship. I think he might have a natural jab. (laughs)
0: Charles Davies would end up managing Jackson for five years and brought him to the greatest heights of success that a black man could reach at the time. John L. Sullivan repeatedly refused to fight him on the grounds of his color, though Sullivan had previously been scheduled to fight old chocolate George Godry, though the police broke it up before it even started. It's my personal belief that Sullivan was the kind of racist that would fight a black man he thought he could beat, but would avoid someone like Jackson who could at least give him a run for his money. So I do, taking a step back, wonder if like the high betting on that match that he saw was a bunch of people trying to, you know, not, not knowing what Jackson had in his fists. It was a lot of people going, oh, well, the odds are on this, uh, this, this, this guy over here, those who I don't like based on cultural reasons. And they threw all the money they could at him losing. So that's kind of why I think. I think racism as a cultural institution played a lot into why the betting was so heavy.
1: Well, I am glad that they lost their money, and I hope that he got a proper cut of that. A, a pirate share, as they say.
0: Davies got him high level fights like one against James Corbett in a fight that went 61 rounds and ended in a draw when both parties were too exhausted to continue. What a nightmarish fight to be in. Oh, my God, 61 fucking rounds.
1: Dude, I don't even know, like, what was that 61st time to the stool, like, where they both, like, gave each other the look, and they're like, bro, you good? All right, all right, because we got 61 rounds, man. Guys have an entire career and don't fight 61 rounds.
0: Yeah, and a lot of people point to that fight as the one that chewed up Peter Jackson too much to even really, that was where his decline started because you do not fight 61 rounds and then do well. You don't fight 61 rounds and then like recover from that completely ever.
1: Yeah, to give you an idea, the amount of damage, the cumulative damage Ali took in the Frazier fights and in the Foreman fights, those were 15-round fights. So you're talking about four of, I mean, obviously we're not talking about the, probably the same amount, volume of damage, but that number of rounds is just staggering to I me. Mean, I can't imagine a human being being the same after something like that.
0: Yeah, an entire boxing and race relation podcast could do a series on Davies and Jackson alone, but that's sadly not what we're doing here today. In the early summer of 1889, the fight world's eyes were fixed on the upcoming Jack Kilrain versus John L. Sullivan boxing match, but Davies was getting nervous. The contracts had been signed, but Sullivan was still out of shape, drunk, and not seemingly giving a shit about anything. On May 10th, Davies convinced William Muldoon to take on the role of trainer for Sullivan and took him upstate to Muldoon's farm near Belfast, New York, after a night of public drunkenness at the Vanderbilt Hotel. John L. Sullivan on a spree, read the Pittsburgh Dispatch on May 11th. Sullivan disgusts his employers, friends, and backers. Kilrain's friends are jubilant and are backing their favorite. He embarrassed his friends and supporters to the point that they had to ship him off for intervention and hostage-style training with Muldoon, who became responsible for keeping Sullivan sober, eating properly, and training to fight. Sullivan hated every second of it, but it did the job. Remember that Muldoon was a sober man with a sober approach towards fitness and ran a rather strict regimen for anyone who came to him for training. Muldoon went on tour with Sullivan as a handler and a coach, and Sullivan was already looking physically fit. Quote, From his appearance, Sullivan is not drinking at all. He has reduced his weight 26 pounds since he went to Muldoon's farm, claimed the Chicago Tribune.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, this is another one of those things where the perspective is a funny thing, because when we visited this so long ago, it was like the proto super training camp right like the crossover the head wrestler the top wrestler in the world training the top boxer bringing him back for this grandiose super fight
0: all i can see is the perfect like rocky style montage
1: yeah that's it except one guy doesn't want to be there and he keeps trying to escape and like get hammered
0: and instead of eye of the tiger it's like old tiny piano music (inaudible) like it's a saloon somewhere because they didn't have good music back then
1: Yeah, but that's definitely what uh, Muldoon's entrance
0: music would be. (laughs) And they put on wrestling exhibitions, but under the weirdest of rules. According to the May 29th Interocean, Muldoon and Sullivan had a 10-round wrestling match in Cincinnati under London prize rules, so I assume it was throws without groundwork and throws counting as knockdowns. Either way, Muldoon did a heck of a job making Sullivan look like his equal grappling on their feet, with each man getting five out of 10 falls for a draw.
1: Yeah, what a worker, first of all. I mean, first of all, like, I'm gonna invent some rules to make it like, okay, you're good at two things. Cause keep in mind too, guys, it was slightly different boxing back then, right? It was, you know, the- the, the... It
0: was the London prize rule. So it was bare knuckles, clinches weren't broken up, and upper body throws were fine,
1: and they counted like as a knockdown potentially if you basically grecoed somebody, right? Yeah.
0: So if you knocked somebody down or you threw them, then it would just be like you go to your corner because it was there wasn't like standing tens. It was until you give up or you can't get up.
1: Yeah, it's yeah, but it would be scored or seen as the greater like that guy got knocked on his ass, and and what better style to suit that boxing wrestling hybrid than greco
0: exactly because greco keep in mind it was london prize rules a lot of more british style boxers but london really didn't embrace greco-roman i mean they did have their folk styles which was waist up but nothing really matched as well for boxing like greco-roman because it's all upper body and it's body grips as opposed to like jacket or gi grips you know for like the collar and elbow style of wrestling so muldoon was the perfect coach for this and also um, for anybody who's boxed this is why they used to always have a wrestler as part of a boxing camp because if you could put your weight on a guy for 3 rounds the rounds after that you could just light him up cuz he's he's exhausted so if you have a good wrestling ability and you could just clinch and put your weight on a guy especially when they wouldn't break it up good lord you're going to take the soul out of that man
1: yeah i wonder if they ever had any like you know relatively relatively the equivalent to like an MMA match or like sparred where it was like, let me see if you can take me down Muldoon and I'm gonna try to knock you out or like did some takedown with gloves or something. I would've been really interested because they're really like, they are at the forefront of mixing martial arts here.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I have heard stories that Muldoon, uh, you know, that Sullivan would be like on the verge because he would get so frustrated with not being able to eat 50 steaks and drink a gallon of whiskey and being actually made to train properly. Then he would like lose his temper and practically almost challenge Muldoon to a fight, and Muldoon would be like, "Cool, we can do this." And Sullivan would get very take it down and notchy, if you will, when he realized he was talking himself into something he couldn't handle. But yeah, uh, you did see a lot of boxer wrestler conflict. There were what they would call all in or rough and tumble, where you'd have those type of fights, but again you know you have the two best guys in the world training so i feel like they did no matter what the emotional state have a healthy respect for what the other man could do and a good boxer will always know not to piss off a wrestler who he respects in those circumstances
1: yeah i mean yeah that's that it's like rock paper scissors in that way cuz a boxer is very dangerous until they can't hit you anymore
0: and speaking of boxing It's important to remember yet again that while we're talking mostly about the wrestling part of Parson Davies' career, he was primarily a boxing promoter. I'm skipping all but the highlights and the things that feel very pro wrestling, because otherwise this would be a 20-part series and I would go insane researching it. And speaking of highlights, the Kilrain-Sullivan fight was definitely one of them. Remember that most states had outlawed boxing at this point, so it was an ordeal just to get a ring set up, let alone getting the men into the ring. The men had special train cars for their trip to Louisiana, with Sullivan's containing a bathtub and shower, as well as a gym with a heavy bag and dumbbells. And in my mind, I pictured once again very cartoonish, very silent slapstick comedy of him like trying to train on the on a on a you know trying to train on a train, and like the the weights are like sliding back and forth. He's trying to hit the punching bag with a punching bag swaying with the train so he can't hit it. It's very Charlie Chaplin in my brain, but my brain is a very dumb place.
1: Yeah, does your brain also make everything that happened back then like in black and white?
0: Oh yeah, no, it, it all, and it has title cards in it.
1: Okay, I was just making sure, but yeah, no, you know what's funny? That's like the first Lex Express. Ooh. Yeah, shout out to the nerds that got that reference.
0: The fighters, promoters, audience members, press, and all other important people and unimportant hangers-on congregated at the St. Charles Hotel in New Orleans. The site of the actual fight was still being held top secret to avoid legal complications. According to the St. Paul Globe on July 7th, the time when the cars will leave may be changed at the last moment to avoid too much publicity, and that they intended to get the heck out of the South as soon as it was over. There was plenty of concern that the governor would find an excuse should he discover the location of the fight to send out military level force to stop it, even though, as the Los Angeles Herald reported, the attorney general of Louisiana could find no law prohibiting prize fights. The fight was to take place no more than three hours from New Orleans, but the governor of Mississippi stated that he had soldiers covering the borders to keep the fight from happening there. The governor of Arkansas also wanted the fight out of his state, having rejected their application and threatened them with arrest should they attempt it. So what circumstances to even try to put a fucking match on? You've gone to the only places where you can legitimately hide in the woods and have a fight. Congregating in Louisiana, where the governor hates boxing, says, I am the law. I don't care what the law actually says. I will send the goddamn militia to stop you. And every state you could possibly go to is wanting to put troops on the border to stop you. As a promoter, that's nightmarish, that's insane, that is cuckoo bananas from the moon. But the people I have the most admiration for are the people who bought tickets to go on this insane adventure. Oh dude, sign me up.
1: But I mean, what in the name of a Dukes of Hazard plot are we talking about here? We're talking about potentially the biggest boxing match in the world at the time. And they have to pull some, like, Ocean's Eleven shit with, like, a boxcar Charlie train set up to, like, sneak people to the secret location to have the fight before, you know, Boss Hogg and the the oh, sheriff yeah. comes and closes it down and it, takes the law into his own hands. It's, it's ridiculous, man.
0: Yeah, because people were catching trains to Louisiana to get a ticket to find out what train they're getting on and when, trying to understand, trying to make sure they get past the militia on the borders to get where they're going and not get arrested for just wanting to watch this goddamn thing. I am sometimes have a hard time getting the motivation to go across town on a day off to watch fights or watch wrestling. So these guys are way more dedicated than me. I don't know, man. I think if we had the
1: opportunity to ta- to maybe catch a felony or get killed by the, the governor taking over with the militia, for watching an underground prize fight of the number two fighters in the world somewhere in the woods and we had to take a train there and didn't know where we were going. Yeah, I think yeah, 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 I, yeah I think yeah. you and we would be, be taking that taking that ticket. We'd be we'd be Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer in it that day.
0: Ultimately, the fight took place on July eighth on a plantation outside of Richburg, Mississippi. The Los Angeles Times called it a screaming farce that quote The efforts of the authorities to prevent the fight were worthy of a scene in a first-class comic opera. At the ring, just before the fight commenced, the sheriff of the county appeared, commanded peace, and retired. It is not stated whether he retired to a seat in the front row, but the presumption is to that effect.
1: (laughs) He retired to his pot of gold and his, you know, his quiet uh, not knowing what went down at the show. He
0: had to collect his honorarium, if you will.
1: Yeah, somebody had to get the somebody had to uh, get the cut for the county.
0: Sullivan had Muldoon in his corner for the fight, which was set for London Prize Ring rules. London Prize rules simplified means no gloves, unlimited rounds, and rounds ending with a knockdown. If a man couldn't get to his feet and back to the center of the ring, that was it. The crowd was large, rowdy, and reportedly too well armed for the comfort of those involved. Ha! Yeah, they, they, they were not messing around. Davies later stated that July 9th, 1889, was the most fearful day of his life.
1: <laughs> this show keeps getting better and better.
0: The fight was the war everyone expected. After the 75th round, Whew. the referee asked Sullivan if he'd accept a draw. He, of course, would not. Killrange Corner threw in the sponge because their fighter couldn't continue. Davies stated that if the fight had continued much longer, someone probably would have been killed in the ring or by the crowd. Think about that. 75 rounds. 75 rounds. And keep in mind, these are not timed rounds. They end with a knockdown.
1: Oh, these people got their money's worth. You can't say that they did not get a fight worthy of a train heist movie. Yeah,
0: I mean, that is completely completely insane to think of two heavyweights of that dangerous caliber fighting for 75 rounds. Fucking rounds.
1: So I I have two thoughts on that. One, Mister Goody Two Shoes, Man of the Law, William Muldoon. At what point was he like, all right, I'm going Captain America. We're going Rogue. Like you know what I'm saying? He's like, well, fuck the law.
0: That guy's. That guy did have a history of being shady. When showbiz. When matches. When that. When it, when he had to keep the straight face on that side of things. He you know he he was still at his heart he was a carney so yeah. it, it was just the way business had to be done and then
1: i wonder also how that whole scenario affected his sort of like the inception of him maybe becoming the commissioner of like somebody's got to take the reins on this madness so we don't have to take trains to to a, a you know a 75 round fight in the woods but i mean i can't imagine that that, that is such a crazy that's literally the craziest story in the history of the show. As far as setting up a fight and all that. It is, it is one of my favorites, man.
0: And the crowd was booing Kilrain for backpedaling. Quote, Kilrain adopts foot racing tactics from start to finish, claimed the St. Paul Globe. Kilrain was a mess, with his face demolished from the fight. He was beaten in every sense of the word, and he was left nearly abandoned in the ring as everyone packed up and left. Whew. Davies stayed behind to help Kilrain through the ropes, but Kilrain was so thrashed that Davies and Kilrain's cornerman Mike Donovan, had to carry him out and get him into a buggy owned by the plantation owner. Once in the buggy, Kilrain broke down into tears.
1: You don't say I mean, keep that in mind, guys. 75 rounds to a knockdown per round, and he probably took the majority of the knockdowns. That fool got knocked down like 50, 60 times.
0: And it's um, not just that. It's like people sometimes don't understand a fight isn't just a fight. It's months of negotiations. Uh, it's months of training. It's all the fights. every. It's everything. It's every fight you had before leading up to this. A championship fight is the culmination of everything you've wanted since the first time you saw your hero fight and win, and you said, I want to be that guy someday. And, and then you throw that into the chaos of something where... Everybody has to just get the fuck out of Dodge immediately. So this man took the beating of five lifetimes, and he was just left in the ring to try to figure out himself with the biggest physical and emotional beating a human being could take. So, yeah, he had to be carried out. He got put in a buggy, and he broke down. And you know what? I would have too.
1: Yeah, I mean, essentially, like, imagine losing the Super Bowl and getting knocked the fuck out 75 times in a row, and then getting back up each time, and, okay, you gonna go again? (laughs) Whap, getting knocked out again? Yeah, I think that's a perfectly appropriate time to cry.
0: The buggy took him back to New Orleans, where he could board a train and head back north. His wife reportedly thought it was a joke when she heard the outcome. Everyone's plan was to get the fuck out of town as soon as possible. Mississippi law held fines of $500 to $1,000, and or a year in prison for those who were involved in the fights. And those who aided and abetted would only be fined $100 and do six months in jail. And things almost went sideways immediately when the Davies party had a car reserved, but the press had thrown bigger money at ensuring they would get the story of the fight back to the papers first. Not to be stopped, Davies and company attached their car to the press car. Some reporters came out to pull the pin joint from the cars, But a member of Davy's party pulled a gun first, and that was the end of it.
1: Wow! So it's like, to beat the press wire, they literally had to pull a gun on a guy to stop him from doing the, like, cartoon pull the pin and leave the train car behind? Yeah, they
0: they had to attach their car to the press car to even get out safely. And somebody from the press comes out, tries to pull the pin, and somebody's like, pulls the pistol, like, not so fast there, partner. Shenanigans,
1: I say. This is just... The most ridiculous episode of Looney Tunes I've ever seen in my life!
0: The New York Times on July 12th reported that Governor Lowry of Mississippi was telegraphing the police in surrounding states that he would pay $1,000 to anyone that arrested Sullivan and sent him back. While stopping in Nashville, the police found his train car and wanted him to come with them. Arguments ensued because the police could not provide a warrant and Sullivan had broke no law in Tennessee. After much arguing, threats of violence, and guns being drawn, Sullivan went with the police, but a judge released him under hobbyist corpus because Tennessee police had no legal cause to detain or arrest him. Sullivan went on a post-fight bender in Chicago, because of course he did, according to the July 15th New York Times, starting with champagne, moving on to liquor, and then punching his friends out during arguments. Well, you know what?
1: I'd say that's a perfectly appropriate time to party after just having a seventy fine round fight in the woods at the end of a heist movie, then having to pull a pistol to get your train on the tracks, then having to pull a pistol to not get arrested in Tennessee on the cops. Yeah, I'm going to have a drink after
0: that, too. Kill Rain arrived in Chicago on the 14th, and was so broke that Parson Davies loaned him $100 and sent him east on a train to Pennsylvania.
1: That is fucked up.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, you take the beating of a fucking lifetime, and you show back up at Chicago without a penny to your name, having to borrow money from the promoter.
1: Here, I'll lend you a dollar for every time you got knocked out. That is cold, man. How did he not get anything from that?
0: Well, I'm sure he did, but I, I feel like there was, there was probably like, we will get you your money... You know, as soon as we get it counted, because I mean, Davies was an honest promoter. Yeah, that's has, what I'm saying, because that so, seems
1: just like so just I, fucking a guy.
0: Yeah, well, I also feel like it was the situation like, cool, we got this done, we got the gates, we have to get it back here, we have to count it, we have to verify it, we'll have to do it this way. So, but if you don't have a fucking, you know, penny to your name, that thousands of dollars next week doesn't mean a damn thing.
1: Yeah, but also, it's like, what do they got to do, wait for it to clear Venmo? I mean, just sit there with the money until the money has been
0: counted, man.
1: Like, dude,
0: just hang out and have a sandwich and ice your forehead. Well, things were going to get even more complicated because Sullivan was later arrested in New York and sent back to Mississippi. Kilrain was arrested in Baltimore. It took months and plenty of money to clear things up. The Biloxi Herald on December 21st covered the absurdity of the jury refusing to convict Kilrain of prize fighting, no matter what. He was convicted of assault and battery with a fine of $500 and two months in jail, which due to a large check being written in court was spent under essentially house at a friend, Charles W. Rich's place. When released, the weekly Democrat Times described him as, quote, in splendid condition physically. His face bore the ruddy hue of health. His eyes were bright, and as he spoke, they flashed with considerable animation. He did not appear as one who had just served out a sentence of an infringement of the law of the state, but rather as one who was just returning from a pleasure trip in the mountains. <laughs> well, one, it was because he
1: was basically in recovery the whole time from that ass and two, talk about, like, the worst payday in history.
0: I, I do love that, though, That's like, okay, the, the jury refuses to... Uh, Convict him of price fighting just for battery. Well, where did the battery take place? Oh, in in a boxing ring Huh, and then you know and then instead of going to jail with like, you know with hard labor Like his friend just busted out a checkbook and says I'll keep an eye on him in my place How much how much do I have to pay for that? So it was just literally handing money to the judge in open court and he spent time at his friend's house Just enjoying life as a punishment for his, his awful crimes.
1: I would have never, ever imagined the state of Mississippi to have unfair legal practices. This is ridiculous, man.
0: The Mississippi newspapers in January 1890 decried a bill to find money to offset the expense of finding, arresting, transporting, and trying Sullivan and Kilrain back to face the courts. It's a good thing expensive publicity stunts by governors at the expense of the taxpayers is a thing of the past, eh? So yeah, they, he spent so much money, like, putting out bounties, having to send people to bring them back, having them arrested, that he ran out of fucking money and had to go to the legislature asking them to pass a bill so he could raid the state funds to cover all of it. On March 24th, 1890, the Mississippi Supreme Court overturned the indictment against Sullivan along with his one-year sentence. Because none of the prosecutor's statements claimed the fight was for the public, or that he fought Kilrain to begin with. In the March 29th, Hines County Gazette, an editorial writer bemoaned, quote, As was predicted from the very commencement, the now celebrated case of the state of Mississippi versus John L. Sullivan concludes in a grand farce, a mockery of Southern courts and Mississippi justice. They wrote that the state Supreme Court was remiss in their duties when, quote, quashing all the indictments against the great and renowned champion of the world, who is now free as the heir, free to come to Mississippi, to Richburg, or even Jackson and laugh in the face of the governor. The affair was long and costly. According to many rumors, Sullivan blew through his $20,000 from the fight quickly and not exactly on legal defense. So, and again this is rumor, he relied on rich friends to help him out with legal bills, including Davies and Muldoon, and that same article, that same editorial, decried that, you know, they did this to try to send a message to these boxers that they can't be doing their bloodthirsty, brutal sport for a public. And at the same time, there's like both Kilrain and Sullivan are just putting together fights all over the place and then coming back to handle court. In the end, it cost the state so much money. The governor looked like a jerk, and the ultimate sentence was Sullivan absolutely nothing and kill Rain spending two months at a friend's house
1: Yeah, man still like talking about the short end of the stick on the paydays It's like if you lose this fight, you're getting knocked out 75 times you're spending two months on the shelf and you're gonna be broke and Yeah, Sullivan at least got to party a little bit
0: but getting back on track with Parson Davies he at this time was putting on a tour It was Evan the Strangler Lewis touring with boxer Pat Killen and others, doing the typical challenge matches throughout the summer. In Milwaukee, on July 21st, he defeated English champion, in quotations, Charles Green in three straight falls, according to the St. Paul Globe the next day. July 22nd, 1889, Chicago Tribune, Parson Davies as a slugger. While in New York to attempt the arrangement of a Peter Jackson, John Sullivan fight, And Davies was taunted by one E.J. Van Horn, a sporting man of North Platte, Nebraska. Van Horn followed Davies, taunting him over representing Kilrain and Jackson instead of Sullivan. Van Horn, of course, said some very unacceptable things about Jackson, so Davies finally turned around and, quote, planted his right hand between the eyes of the Westerner, who fell to the sidewalk as though a battering ram had struck him.
1: Well, fuck with
0: the bull, get the Van Horns, eh?
1: I mean this guy does not know that he obviously didn't listen to the first couple episodes. He does not know who he's dealing with. This is not some jabroni promoter. This man will throw hands, God damn it. On August 21st,
0: 1889, Davies and Peter Jackson set off to England. The primary goal was a fight against British champ Jem Smith. The fight, which happened on November 11th, 1889, ended in the second round when Jem Smith was getting absolutely wrecked Clinched and threw Jackson wrestling style and was disqualified for the move. The Devon and Exeter Daily Gazette on the 12th reported that when he was DQ'd, Smith had to be held back by the police to stop him from attacking Jackson. Genuine freakout, or was this again when Boxy becomes pro wrestling?
1: Yeah, it was one of the it's hard to tell because it sounded like the way it was written up, it sounded like he had like kind of a Mike Tyson Holyfield moment where it's like, You're getting your ass whooped within the rules, but you're enraged. You just take a a cheap shot and a shortcut any way you can. Uh, But, you know, I guess it depends on if they're building for a rematch as to whether the hippodrome is in or not.
0: Well, Davies traveled extensively with Jackson, getting him the biggest fights and the biggest paydays possible, along with many other boxing exhibitions before heading back to America. In Chicago, on July 3rd, 1890, boxer Billy Brennan was killed in the ring by Frank Gerard. The two men were clearly out for blood, and Brennan was outboxed by Gerard, who was slugging him across the ring at every moment. Brennan tried to rush and clinch to avoid taking more punishment, but the two men lost their collective balance, and they fell with Brennan hitting his head on the floor. Mm. He was taken backstage and treated with brandy, ammonia, and even coffee. And it's easy to laugh at the old-timey medicine But that's what sports medicine was back in those days. Just give him some sort of stimulant to wake him up and get him back in there. But Brennan passed away while the show continued. The police arrested Gerard and locked up nearly everyone involved in the match or who was even there. Davies was told by friends to get out of town before the heat came down on him. He refused and said he'd make sure everything and everyone was taken care of. Wow. Exactly. What a guy. Davies went to the prison and comforted Gerard in jail, who had been openly crying over the situation and who could fucking blame
1: him. Yeah, sure. I mean, even just to jump in on that, like you said, they were out for blood. It's one thing to like really in that moment, you might think you want to kill that guy, but you're not trying to like maim that guy and take away that guy's life or that guy's livelihood. Right, like, you know, it's, it's a different tier and I'm sure he felt fucking awful.
0: Oh, I assume, and also, I can personally attest to how fucked it is to sit in a jail cell after a fight, not knowing who was hurt, how bad, and what your future might hold. It is not a good feeling, I don't recommend it to anyone.
1: Same, yes. Especially not in a foreign country. Or in 1890s.
0: Charles Davies attended the inquest, answered questions, and voluntarily told the story of what happened that night. The coroner stated that Brennan had a pre-existing head injury, and in the days of old-timing boxing, I'm sure he did. The Arizona Daily Star on the 5th reported that, quote, The jury returned a verdict that Brennan met his death by an accidental fall. Gerard and the other prisoners are thus cleared. Mayor Gregier has announced that, hereafter, no more boxing matches will be allowed in the city. So, yeah, this is a case of, This is
1: why we can't have nice things. Yeah, and I mean, you know, this is where the need for law and, you know, in terms of, like, a certain standard of what the Athletic Commission is supposed to do in terms of making sure that these events operate... There's no... I mean, it is a fight. You could die. But to make sure that the safety is as likely as possible. I mean these are the situations that are super unfortunate and these are why we have athletic commissions is to to try to avoid shit like this because it is tragic.
0: And this made it even more tragic. Nobody knew where to find Brennan's family but Davies did his best to look for them as reported in the Chicago Tribune on July 7th before paying for Brennan's burial in Chicago. The Chicago Tribune of course took this opportunity to lash out at the sport demanding that the mayor and the police take action against prize fights. So that is, again, promoter going above and beyond as a human being because it turned out that wasn't even his real name. They did find some information later. So he actually tried to track down this guy's family. They just knew he was a fighter who showed up, whatever. Nobody was really using their real names back then in boxing and wrestling. He tried to find out who this guy was, tried to find his family, and at the end just paid for his funeral in Chicago. And if that's not a stand-up guy, I don't know what is.
1: Yeah, that really is remarkable when you think about the amount of personal care that he showed to everyone involved in the situation on both sides, because that is not his table, as they say, and he really went above and beyond, so that's that's a stand-up
0: dude, man. So once again, boxing was being a nightmare to organize and promote in most states. Peter Jackson had returned to Australia, so Davies went back to pushing wrestling, particularly in the San Francisco Bay Area. The San Francisco Call on July 20th, 1890 article, Nothing Much Doing at Present Among the Pugilists, reported that, quote, Parson Davies, the all-around sporting manager, has arrived with his combination of neck twisters and carpet tumblers. Evan, <laughs> Evan Lewis, the Strangler, is the star of the troupe. I love that term, the neck twisters and carpet tumblers.
1: Yes, the, uh, the dude, uh, we need to bring back
0: carpet tumblers. Well we need to bring back the carpet and then everybody needs knee pads.
1: Yes, but this is why we, we just discussed why we can't uh, have prize fights going 75 rounds on carpets anymore.
0: Lewis was doing the open challenge matches as well as exhibitions with Irish wrestler Tom McInerney, who was billed as the champion of Ohio at the Orpheum Theatre because of course he was. Davies would also give lectures on the scientific method of wrestling with his two wrestlers putting on demonstrations. The San Francisco Chronicle, July 30th, Evan Lewis was frustrated by his inability to throw a young challenger in 15 minutes. Who was this young upstart who won $25 by lasting 15 minutes? He was Dan McLeod, who would play an important part in Frank Godge's career, would beat Martin Burns for the American Championship, which he lost after four years to Tom Jenkins. So it's always cool to see, like, the first appearance on the national stage of a regional guy like Dan McLeod, We're like, oh, this young, unknown guy. Because Dan McLeod was the guy who showed up to the carnival Gotch was working under a fake name, beat him, and then it was like, dude, you're, you're all right. You got to meet Farmer Burns. So yeah. he was a very important guy, so I got very excited when I saw his name. And this was like his first time on Dark, so that's awesome. <laughs> in August, Charles Davies would play the role of Gaston in the musical Burlesque of Camille at the Baldwin Theater, also featuring boxer James J. Corbett as an actor. An ad in the San Francisco call on August 3rd listed ticket prices as $1 for orchestra and dress circle, $0.75 cents for balcony, $0.50 cents GA, and $0.25 cents for the gallery. So in addition to all this, boxers, wrestlers, promoters, they're also performing on the stage as actors. Because, hey, show showbiz, baby.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it was so much more of a smaller circle of just you were an entertainer you might be doing a strongman routine or a uh, exhibition or a wrestler who boxes or you know it was just it was so much more carny
0: and speaking of carny on august 26 1890 at the orpheum evan lewis got a proper match with dan mcleod lewis was required to throw mcleod three times in one hour catch as catch can rules four hundred dollars aside as for the gambling quote there were no pools sold on the wrestling match between Evan Lewis and D McLeod, which took place last evening, but it was rumored that the Friends of the Scottish Champion wagered sums of money ranging from a necktie to a quarter of a dollar on the results. <laughs> was that, would that be a Scottish necktie? Like, my man loses. It, it just shows that they, like, everybody knew this was a put-up job. Like no, it was, it was so obvious that nobody was even going to risk the ire of gamblers by taking their money.
1: Well, that's that's when you got to put the work in. But yeah, I mean, it was pretty obvious at that point he's not gonna make the kid. But
0: I loved this quote: "Quite a large attendance of gullible sports assembled <laughs> to witness the contest." Yes. <laughs> that applies to every wrestling audience oh, ever. Yeah. No, I, I'm gonna. That's gonna be the name of my next show. <laughs> Describing the third fall, quote: "Lewis then toyed with his opponent until his manager gave him a wink." It wasn't. <laughs> oh. a- wanted a 10 minutes on the hour and as quick as a flash, McLeod was planted on his back and the referee awarded the match to Mr. Lewis and thus ended the first hippodrome of the new series.
1: <laughs> Dude! Well, first of all, what eagle eye crack reporting by, by this journalist who saw the wink. He saw the prestige of the magic trick and what a finish!
0: I, I always love the old tiny wrestling articles where they're like, can you believe this bullshit? Because again, you still occasionally have the people who are like, "Oh, back in the you know, you know in the in their territory days, everybody had to know it was real and everybody thought it was real." It's like, "No, people have been calling bullshit on this since the 1800s." Yes, silly goose.
1: Yeah, it's just people have also thought it was real, and those are the marks, darling. But oftentimes What's funny, even you see it now, is the guys who are like, this shit's stupid, this shit's fake, and they get caught up into it 45 minutes later, they're the guys that end up trying to rush the ring like a dumbass and getting their ass whooped by a hypothetical promoter of some sort. Yeah, I
0: mean, I can see a promoter having to deal with that at some point. It's sad, and hopefully it never happens. I'm sure if it
1: does, it's a hippodrome.
0: Ooh, yes. In mid-September, Davies and Lewis headed back to Chicago... In an interview published in the September 14th InterOcean, it was stated that, quote, Parson Davies believes that professional wrestling deserves a higher position in the estimation of the sport-loving public than it now occupies. Davies claimed that he worked hard to rehabilitate the good name of wrestling because, quote, There has been so much hippodrome done in the business during the last 10 years that the public has naturally become impregnated with suspicion and all notice of challenges and matches were received with indifference. Davey's also expressed a desire to take Evan Lewis to England, quote, where I am certain that square sport will be appreciated. So again, this is a trick that went from these days to Japan in the 90s. The best way to advertise yourself is, we're the real wrestlers. These guys are all phonies, even though your phony is a $3 bill. So it is marketing genius.
1: It does help when you have the strangler. As your, you know, as your muscle saying we're the real guys, but you know what a stand-up dude for the sport though. I mean, he really is going above and beyond to try to uphold the integrity, and and, and he's not doing it for some sort of like, you know, uh, self demigoguery like Muldoon. You know, he's not trying to be self-righteous. It's like he's just a good guy.
0: It's like we don't deserve him. In October, Lewis and Davies returned to San Francisco to seek a match with Joe Acton. Lewis's stature clearly had surpassed Acton's for the rematch because if instead of a straight to the finish match, Lewis agreed to throw Acton twice in one hour. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, the match would be 500 aside and a 65 35 split at the gate, a weird number. I assume there was a lot of arguing. The match took place on November 22nd at the new Wigwam Theater in San Francisco, and if that's not fun to say, I don't know what is. The San Francisco call covered the match. Lewis came in at 189 pounds against Joe Acton's 162. The match commenced at 9.20 p.m. After 25 minutes, Lewis got a necklock, and Acton's shoulders touched the carpet one at a time as Lewis turned him. The referee said something that sounded like, a fall, and Lewis let go. The referee said he didn't call the fall, and the two men went back at it. Quote, after Lewis had taken a firm hold of Acton's neck, the latter's nose commenced to bleed. The fluid painted Lewis's back in bright vermilion. What a description of a bloody nose.
1: Yeah, and I also liked the description of, of neck lock. That just works. Like, that describes just about anything that he could do to manipulate him with as sort of like a wrestling maneuver as opposed to a joke.
0: And I can imagine his frustration thinking that the referee called it and he lets go and shit just has to keep going.
1: Oh, I hate that shit.
0: Well, it it always makes me think of um, a million years ago uh, tournament. If if you've ever done wrestling, jujitsu, it's not like the, you know, all-valley... Karate tournament where everybody's watching one thing in the middle. It's like fifty fucking matches happening all around, and my friend Robert was going with this guy, caught him in a knee bar. I mean, we're talking textbook knee bar, and he heard somebody somebody else's referee say tap, so he lets go, and the guy goes for his back and got uh. his back. Robert did reverse, and he still managed to win. But I have never I never saw that man so pissed off in my life because yeah 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 you have the hold. You think you hear the referee call it, you let go, that win is now erased, you gotta now beat the guy a second time.
1: I had I had something similar happen where the guy tapped, and he tapped on me, but the ref didn't see it. And so I let go and thought I won, right, realized this guy quit, and, but nope, then he acted like he didn't do it. Ooh, that's fucking dirty. I was really fucking pissed. And uh, if for those of you that don't know at home, I have a tattoo on my arm of all the arms I've broken in competition. And that guy is right here. Number five, <laughs> darling. That is a shoot.
0: Lewis eventually would catch Acton with a leg trip for a fall at the 35-minute mark. However, that was the only fall he would get. Acton was declared the winner when the time limit expired. I feel like this is definitely a bit of hippodroming. Any time where the lighter man has all the odds stacked against him and pulls out the time limit draw win, I don't see that being on the up and up.
1: Especially that was their uh, that was their out to not really lose. It's like he he only beat him he didn't beat him enough times, so it's not like he really lost, right? That was the classic, the way they would they would book those angles back then to keep the guy strong and make a guy by having him. Just surviving is winning.
0: But he did talk some shit. You're going to hear some words you just do not say about another man. San Francisco call, November 24th. Parson Davies overheard Acton say, he's a duffer, he's an overrated man, regarding Lewis after the match. No one else heard these slurs upon the prowess of the strangler. When calling somebody a duffer and an overrated man, that's how you end up in a river with no head do, 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 do.
1: That would, like, that would, like, silence the crowd on those, like, uh, uh, rank videos where they go back and forth with the insult and the mama jokes. That's vicious. These guys, I love the old-timey shit-talking, though. It's, like, it stings extra because it's, like, proper.
0: Oh, yeah, it's like the Ed Lewis episodes with the go and get yourself a reputation first.
1: That is one of the coldest lines of yeah, all Yeah, because
0: that's time. something where it's like, hey, why don't you go fuck yourself? Oh, yeah, why don't you go fuck yourself? But, Hey, man, go and get a reputation before you talk to me. Oh, Aw.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I got yeah, nothing. Yeah, it's, it's like, uh, who the fuck is that guy 100 years before?
0: Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a mic drop moment before microphones existed. From the November 27th Record Union at Clooney Opera House in Sacramento, Evan Lewis and Tom McInerney were advertised for an exhibition. Also advertised was an open challenge to any local athlete or wrestler, with Parson Davies promising $3 for every minute a man could keep from being thrown, maximum 30 minutes. And don't worry, ladies were welcome to attend. The next day, the match between the two Davies-managed wrestlers got good reviews, but no info as to whether any challengers emerged from the audience. I feel that in a town that doesn't have a big wrestling scene, throwing down the open challenge money against somebody like Evan Lewis is just universally seen as a bad idea. This isn't Muldoon who will just toss you. This is somebody who will harm you. This is a guy who will make sure you miss a few days of work.
1: Yeah, he's gonna hurt you permanently. He's a, he's a he's a ripper. He's a, a hooker, a shooter. You know, and a shooter that does permanent damage. And uh, or
0: as we learned from the uh, the pessic uh, episodes, a ripper.
1: A ripper. Yeah, I love that term. And it's um. You know, I don't know if I, I would be willing to do that for three bucks. Even oh, yeah. even in, in even
0: old-timey three bucks. Yeah, nights. even if it was straight out of gold from Fort Knox. The San Francisco Morning Call on November 30th reported that Acton and Lewis agreed to terms for a match. 500 aside, three out of five falls, and Lewis had to weigh in at 180 in his trunks and boots, all going down on December 9th. So they have built from the probably hippodromed handicap match where Acton came out on top by default moving up to now we have finally built it up to a proper match proper to a finish with proper size oh the drama oh the suspense oh my goodness who is not going to buy a ticket to this
1: that is how you build it though man they the they do a great job of being workers in the sense of working is Making the best of what you have in front of you, you playing the best possible use of your hand and the stipulations and the way that they go to different places and these holds are banned or this thing isn't allowed. And the way that they let that to determine these things, because now something as big as he has to cut nine pounds. Now it just, it now seems official, right? It seems like a real... Real on-the-square matchup, and I think that's really cool the way that they can manipulate Yeah,
0: because it has very much a, it comes down to this type of energy.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, this is the serious one.
0: The San Francisco Chronicle covered the match with, Acton defeated. The Strangler proves his superiority. Lewis weighed in at 179 and three quarters pounds, so they were ready to go. At 8.50, Parson Davies announced that the wrestlers would appear in 10 minutes lewis won the series three to one in a match that seemed damned good for the paying customers so i do love that he comes in at 179 and three quarters pounds i'm sure that was truly the real number that was on a totally real scale seen by very official officials and not there for drama
1: yeah and certainly the factors of like wearing boots had nothing to do with actually trying to make a legitimate weight
0: Oh God, all I wanted is something where he gets on the scale and he's 180.25 and they're like, Oh boy, you got to lose some weight. He goes, Oh, lifts like lifts one butt cheek and loudly farts for like 30 seconds and then gets back on the scale and nails it.
1: Yeah. I mean, isn't that how you cut weight?
0: That's how I cut weight every day. In the dressing room, Lewis stated that he grew very tired during the match and would not again reduce to 180 pounds to secure any match. And Acton had no complaints. However, I do, because we are out of time. This has already been a long episode, but good God, what crazy stories we told. We had to get them in. What a wild ride. How many people did Parson Davies punch out or shoot at already? Too many or not enough. It depends on your virtues.
1: I mean, but also like how many people did he go above and beyond and was a genuinely good person for and try to help when he had no reason to do so. No,
0: he is a fantastic amazing character. And again, it's people like this I find so fascinating cuz he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Wow. That's that's like the level of obscure this man is. But then you go back and you look, you you find the articles, you read the research, and it turns out this guy had such a crazy life, and he was everywhere. He for every was instrumental. Yeah, for every important boxing and wrestling match for years, for decades, he was there with his finger on the pulse, with his finger on the button, making it happen. He was behind it all. Would Evan Lewis have been the legend that he became without his marketing? Would John L. Sullivan have retained his title in the most important boxing match of the late 1800s? Probably not. So this guy was behind the scenes. He was the puppet master. He was making it happen. And I'm finding his story fascinating.
1: And he will punch a motherfucker in the face. He
0: will punch a motherfucker in the face. and That is sometimes the most important thing you can do. But for now, we're going to call it a day. Make sure you like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, uh, follow us on Instagram. I like to post the articles that I find that have the funniest of headlines, the craziest of stories. And of course, if you feel like kicking in a buck or two if this episode was worth it to you, my Venmo is in the description. Books aren't free, archives aren't free, but I would still be doing this for free no matter what, so no pressure. If you can give us a review, if you can rate us, please do that because we desperately need attention.
1: Yes, and also because, frankly, we're doing good shit. This show is, objectively speaking, this show, I'm really proud of the work we do here. Because exactly, guys, and episodes like this, we are bringing to light these characters that really, the straws that stirred the drink, the string pullers, man. This is some epic shit, and it's all true, or at least, you know, our approximation of true.
0: It's history as a hippodrome. And with that, we're going to say goodbye. For Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. Talk to you next time for Parson Davies Part 4.
1: Peace out, nerds. Cut print martini. (laughs)